0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Kansas City Food Memories. Today we visit with Fred Broski, the legendary weathercaster and host of Bowling for Dollars. It was a great conversation. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. But remember, this is a taped presentation of a live show. So when prompted, do not call in or text in to that studio line that really confused whoever's in studio at the time. Sit back and enjoy and be sure to tell your friends and family and complete strangers about how wonderful and enjoyable this show is. Thank you and enjoy. Well, good morning and welcome to Kansas City Food Memories. I have another fun show planned for you, but let's take care of a little um, business first. Kansas City Food Memories is a show where you take you down um, a stroll down memory lane. We share stories about our favorite restaurants from the 1980s and 90s. Quite often we go a little bit older than that to the 60s and 70s. And also share stories about some of the people that made those times so wonderful. We always talk about the good old days as, as if they're gone forever, but we, as we've learned through this show, that we can keep those memories alive if we share them with each other and share a laugh or two with that. Today's show is also made possible because it's sponsored by my wife and I's business, Best Regards Bakery and Cafe. This show is made possible because all of you that come out to see us there, we're Scratch Bakery, we have breakfast and all those kind of things. But uh, for the people that are familiar with us, the newest items we have this week, we have chai spice sugar cookies. If you're a Taylor Swift fan, you're going to understand what that is. The Swifty Nation is going to be rising up in the next two weeks and will be a place for them to come get a lot of goodies. Our breakfast has been expanded to Monday through Saturday now, including our biscuits, cathead biscuits and gravies. And then key lime pound cake is back in the house. That's something we only do during the hottest months of the year and um, I'll be giving a notice on the last week we sell that because people buy several of those to put in the freezer, but it is key lime pound cake that we make with real key lime juice that we fly up from um, the Key West, Florida. So that makes a big difference. So if you have any questions on the show or you want feedback or you want to know what's going on, go to MakeThemSmile.com. That is the website for Best Regards Bakery, and that's also I use that for the radio show. So go to the top left-hand corner and sign up for the emails. And um, what I'll send usually one out on Monday, gives an update on some things that we uh, covered on Saturday and give you an update on that. And also send one out on Friday, giving you heads up on who the guest is so I can get some interesting dirt on them as I did with my next guest, which will be fun. So I want to finish up on one thing from last week. So we had Kathy Quinn, which was absolutely Amazing and interesting. And we were talking about Mexican restaurants and her grandmother opened one of the first Mexican restaurants in 19, I think she said 48, Las Palmas. And we were talking about how they used Parmesan cheese on their tacos and how that was authentic Mexican food. But we were confused um, trying to figure out where they got their Parmesan cheese because Parmesan cheese is usually from Italy and things like that. But what I found out is that they used a It's the the cheese is actually called cotija cheese, which is the hard milk cheese that that's indigenous to Mexico. Every country has their version of Parmesan cheese. Parmesan comes from the Parmigiano Reggiano, um, you know, from a certain region. Other countries have hard cheddar, Gruyere, or pecorino. So the cheese that actually that you see at Mexican restaurants that's truly authentic is called cotija cheese. C O T I J A. And I've always absolutely loved that. And they've been using that since the 40s. So that is not a copy off of Italy or anything like that. And you can get that here in Kansas City in a lot of places. So if you want to make tacos at home and you want to give it that, that authentic Mexican flair, just go down to most some grocery stores. I know Costco and um, Sam's Club also sells larger bags of that. So I just wanted to close that loop with all of you. All right. Now for the fun part. My guest today is Fred Broski, and you brought along your daughter, Julie. Good morning. Good morning and welcome. Fred Broski is uh, famous for quite a few different things, and I have to ask you a question. So were you the first or one of the first personality weathermen in Kansas City?
1: I would say probably so. Between myself and Dan Henry, we were both a little bit uh off the charts as far oh, yeah. as <laughs> so, weather information, but we try to add a little comedy. Did you little, start uh, roughly you know, the same time? I think pretty much so. I was on the air at my first TV job in Kansas City uh, for weather show it was at Channel Nine. It was 1966, and I think Dan was, I think he was doing WDF radio at the time, and then also he he sold. He was a salesman, and he also came on and did the weather on the six and ten o'clock news. And he was one heck of a guy and a heck of a broadcaster. Oh,
0: absolutely! I, you know, I just uh, everybody remembers both of you. So, was that phenomenon existing elsewhere in the country?
1: No, that I don't know. I mean, d- d- <laughs> I
0: know. well, did you have when you are starting off? Did you have somebody you looked up to as far as what what to do?
1: Well, I worked at a television station in St. Joseph, Missouri. It was my first job in 1958 in television. And uh there were a lot of people you looked up to the the network announcers, like the you know the Huntley Brinkleys and the Walter Cronkites and those guys and the John Cameron Swayze's. We were just enamored with the business, and we just wanted to just be on television and have some fun and uh we looked at a lot of the announcers on the the network shows, the guys that did the commercials and everything. I have to realize television just started about ten years ago, right We were all in the embryo stage of this wonderful business.
0: Oh yeah, it's the the beginning stage of any industry is wild and interesting, you know that that you can carve your own path. I'm, how many stations were there at the time? Three.
1: Well, I think there were three or four. We had four, five, and nine, and then uh, Channel 19 was the PBS station, and Channel 41 came on later. But television back in the 50s and and the early 60s was pretty much a wild west. Thing. You had daily kid shows. You had, uh, Frank was already doing the Wizzle clown show. And I used to do a kid show up in St. Joe, Missouri. It was just a fun business. Everything was live. You didn't have videotape and you just had fun. And, uh, it was just, uh, everything was live, no videotape. And you never knew what you were going to get. You feel bad in a day. You put on a bad show. You feel good. You have a lot of fun. You have guests come on the show and you talk to the little kids and sometimes they, you know, yank at your shirt or cry or yeah. happy. It was just a a real fun deal of live television. It was on a daily basis this way.
0: So I, I'm, a lot of people are going to have a hard hard time believing this, but how many minutes a day was dedicated to weather coverage back then?
1: Well, back in the day, not near as many as we, we have now. Oh, it's
0: because, crazy now.
1: Well, because you start now, you have a, a headline before the news, you have a headline at the start of the news, you have another bumper uh, before the break, and then you have a two- or three-minute weather show, and then you have a bumper at the close. When I first started doing weather, you had, like, Two and a half minutes, and that was it. There was no promo because you didn't have the personnel to to run the TV station. Right. You know, each camera guy had to go to a different place. Each engineer had to be at a different place. And they didn't have the versatility that they do now. But now they have cartridges that play tapes, and they have a lot of promos and things on already pre-recorded that they can just plug in here, there, and like you run, you're running your own home computer. Back in those days, you just did like 10 minutes of local news, then you did... 3 minutes of local weather and then you did 3 minutes of sports and you signed off and you went to the network. It was pretty simple cut and dried.
0: Hmm. So on what there's a uh, local Facebook group called Kansas City Memories Vintage Photos Place and Things Remembered. Yes. That I mentioned to you. And somebody on there asked if you were on air or doing the weather when a tornado had hit. I can't remember which tornado that they mentioned. You did, you, did you ever have any live coverage or anything like that back then? Very
1: few. Now, I did the weather uh, off and on from 1966 in Kansas City and, mm-hmm. and then I did part-time from 85 to 98 or so. So I was on the air like 25 years. But I don't think there was more than one or two tornadoes within our 90-mile radius that we were most concerned with mm-hmm. that we had to do live coverage on. Had a lot of tornado warnings, but the tornadoes didn't really develop. Mm-hmm. We just talked about the possibilities of them coming down. But, of course, the big one was back in the – that hit Grandview and Belton in, in the early – I guess the early 50s. Mm-hmm. And then there were the Topeka tornado. But I don't think I was on the air at those particular times. I know I went on the one for the one in uh, South Kansas City. Yeah. So we don't really get that many. We get a lot of tornadoes, but we don't get them pinpointed right in Kansas City. We haven't had too many.
0: When do you think we became obsessed as a society with weather and it took over the news?
1: Oh, probably right after the Neanderthal man. <laughs> you know, people have been talking about the weather yeah. since the day they were born. Yeah. And uh, everybody tries to predict of the weather. And, and it, for a place like Kansas City, it's darn tough. Now, I'm not a meteorologist. You know, I'm not a meteorologist. I'm just a staff announcer. Mm-hmm. I got into the business to read commercials and do voiceovers and and um, maybe do the weather show or kid yeah. shows and things like that. More of a, a a showman type thing. Just somebody in show business. But you learn a little bit after you do the weather for so many years. But one thing you learn is that Kansas City's pretty difficult for the meteorologist to predict exactly where these systems are going to go because you have the cold fronts coming from the south or from the north and moving down, and you have the warm fronts coming, and where are they going to? You know, connect, and, and that's where usually the thunderstorms develop. Right. Sometimes they stop at Omaha and they stop moving south. Sometimes they stop at, at Springfield, and then other times they move over and you get them and, and right. they're not expected. So it's pretty difficult to Well, predict. it
0: always it always cracked me up that Gary Lezak's, my favorite line is that you always started every forecast. Well, this is going to be a challenging forecast because, <laughs> and he would he would give about five different reasons why his forecast could be wrong.
1: Uh, Lezak's one of the best. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's but, really good but you know,
0: there's it comes a point that it's almost information overload because you realize anything is possible.
1: Well, we do. Uh, I do think that we err maybe on the side of uh, overloading on weather information because a lot of times you'll watch a weather show and it'll have a graphic that shows like 20 different temperatures over there and five seconds later, another yeah. graphic that shows more, more temperatures, and another right. graphic, and by the time, you know, 20 or 30 seconds yeah. goes by, you might have three or four graphics and you're kind of dazzled with the numbers. Yeah. And one of those Graphics might show the wind chill or the heat right. indexes, and, and you think it might be the temperature, yeah. and it's really only 98 degrees, but the heat index, it says it's going to be 110.
0: Are, aren't and you th- glad you lived in simpler times?
1: <laughs> it was kind of fun without having oh, yeah. because yeah. I never did like to tell people, say, look, it's 95 degrees, but it really feels like it's 105 yeah. no, degrees. It's, it's hot. Yeah, I've always been in the thought that, don't tell me what I feel like. I'll figure out yeah. how I feel. You know, yeah. Tell me what the temperature yeah. is. But it's a necessary evil because a lot of parents, they want to make sure the kids have their proper clothing when they go out when right. it's really cold. But, you know, in, you, I grew up in Kansas City, and to me, when it gets five degrees in Kansas City, it's cold. You don't have to tell them it feels like eight below because the eight below is figured on what it feels like against the heat removing from bare flesh as yeah. long as you have your mittens on, yeah. the
0: coat, well, you know, you're okay. All right. Um, so I forgot to give out the phone number. For all the listeners out there, our phone number to the studio is 913-586-7798. Sam, if you want, can go ahead and open up the phone lines. So that phone number is good for the text line and the phone line. So if you have a question, you don't want to go on the air, you can go ahead and just text that in. I'll try to find time to read that. So the phone number, again, is 913 586 Seven seven nine eight. So I got one text on my phone. Most of the, my listeners can probably guess who it's from. Jasper said, "Ah, bowling for dollars." Jasper Mirable. <laughs> he said that was his favorite show from back then. He said um, um, Jasper would tell you both hello, and he's listening from Florida. He's All actually right. on vacation right now, and he's still listening. And so, thank you very much.
1: Well, Jasper knows his television. He's, oh, he, a, I, he's one of the good guys,
0: <laughs> absolutely. And he told me, "Ask you, did you make a food product at one time?" that you marketed?
1: I I worked with Fritz's Meats and I made a Polish sausage. Oh, did you really? it lasted. How much
0: input did you have on that?
1: Well, as pretty tough. I was off the air and I was gone into retirement and I didn't really have a lot of time to devote to it and it was just kind of a sideline. It was a fun thing to start uh-huh. and it lasted for, well, I don't know, 7 9 months a year or so. Uh-huh. It was fun putting it out, but in order to make any kind of a product grow, I learned that you've got to put a lot of time into oh, it. Absolutely. And, and I was so involved with my retirement activities that I just never did pursue it. So was it your recipe? It was a, a recipe that uh, Fritz and I, uh, Fritz's and I, worked work together. together, and it was just a typical old-fashioned pulley sausage with a little bit of salt and pepper, garlic, and mm-hmm. and a little onion powder in it, and um, a couple of other ingredients. And we ground it up, we made it pretty thick grind, we made it pretty thick mm-hmm. where it would be chunky, as opposed to just I like, I, that's a real, my preference. Yeah, instead of just a, a wiener type yep. thing. And it was a, it was really a fun product to produce. And they they put it in a jar. We had a jar. It was a gallon jar, and I don't know how many pounds we got in there, maybe three or four pounds, and we put a pickling solution in there. Man, I'm telling you, that sat in there for about four or five weeks, and that pickled sausage, it was hard to beat. I'm not sure it's really good for you, but it was hard to beat. It was tasty.
0: So uh, before I forget to ask, because we've got so many things to talk about, what is a – do you have a favorite restaurant that you miss from the 70s, 80s? Well, 70s
1: and 80s –
0: or early I, later, I, just well, one day. Well, I bit. was
1: working on television, and, we, and in between our weather shows a lot of time, we didn't have a, a lot of things to do unless there were severe weather developing. So right. we did have time to take our families out to dinner many times because I only lived about 15 minutes from downtown. Some of our favorite places were the Golden Ox and, mm-hmm. and the Hereford House downtown. And every now and then we'd go to the Plaza 3 if we had a little bit more time because it was a little driving involved. One of my favorite restaurants was when I was a kid. Now I was born in 1936, okay, so I'm 86 years old. Okay, today. I wasn't
0: going to bring that up. But <laughs>
1: well, in any case, I grew up on the east side in the area of 23rd and Van Brunt Boulevard. And down at 24th and Hardesty, there was a Parkview drugstore on the uh, southwest corner and then on the northeast corner, or northwest corner, about 100, 150 feet north, there was this little restaurant called Sam and Susie's. Now, Sam and Susie Lion, Mr. Lyon, we call him. all, but his real name was Sam. Everybody called him Sam and Susie. They had this little hamburger place, and it was maybe 15, 20 feet wide and about 20, 30 feet long. They had a grill, and then Susie, Sam took care of the grill, and Susie took care of the cash register, waiting all the customers. We had about 13 or 15 chairs, and he made these hamburgers. About the size of a golf ball. And then he squashed them down to about the, like a piece of tissue paper. And he fried those things and he fried them really crisp, you know, and he flipped them. At, he'd fry in about a minute because there's mm-hmm. so little meat involved. And then he had put some onions on it and put some mm. mustard. And then on top of all that, he put a little dip of chili on there. And those were some of the best darn uh, sandwiches you could ever expect to find. And they were like a dime a piece.
0: Mm. It's hard to find. Sometimes you wonder a food like that. And we're going to do a show specifically on smash burgers and burgers from back then. But it just seems like you can't get anything close to it today. And you kind of wonder, is it the is it the beef's different? Is it the actual taste different? Or is it just the environment and the time? Well,
1: you have to realize this was almost fast food. You know, mm-hmm. the working guys stop their truck, and go in here and get a quick sandwich and go. Right. So it wasn't really a dining experience. It was for us kids. We'd, lived, we'd go down there and play the pinball machine for two hours and get a small bowl of chili and go home. But it was a fast food type thing. People go in there and they're in and out in twenty five minutes or so. But now restaurants are—it's more of a dining experience, right? You know, you go in for lunch and you might spend two hours in there for lunch, and they serve you something really, really pretty. The presentation is so much better than it was back in the day. Yeah. Sometimes the presentation is better than the food.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know, the what puddle? was the first restaurant that you remember that you would go to to celebrate something where it was—it was a big deal, not just food to get? Was well, any that stand out?
1: And when I grew up, one of the first places we had was a a cafeteria. It was called Crane's Cafeteria down on Truman Road, Mm -hmm. between Truman Road and Hardesty, I think. And that was really something special where you could go down and look at the different trays and you could pick out broccoli or you could pick out mac and cheese. And and that was a great celebration for our family because Mm -hmm. we didn't go out to eat a lot back in the uh, 40s and 50s because – We're working, working family.
0: Absolutely. And
1: and then later when when I got on television, when I would take the kids out to dinner a lot, we went to, the Hereford House was a good call for us because it was just down the street from Channel 9, and they served a a great steak. It was always great, and the price in those days was like three bucks for a strip. And and I used to take my dad down there. After I kind of went into semi-retirement, I'd take my dad down there for lunch every few weeks, or we'd go to various restaurants in Kansas City because it was fun to renew our love for one another and go back about the, and talk about the good times and reminisce about the bad times and how we forgive one another and so forth. I took him down to Hartford house one time. And he kind of like at first he wasn't too fond of my television career because it wasn't in producing something other than just words. But then later he accepted that it was a legitimate business. But we went down there and, and Bob Johnson, who used to drive, uh, ride the horse war paint every time the chiefs got a touchdown, right. he'd ride this, horse up and down he came over to our table I had met had not met Bob before and he said man I really enjoy your weather show and bowling for dollars and it's great to meet you and he says who's this with you I said oh, that's my dad Bob and he said man Stan nice meeting you I uh, hope you enjoy your lunch and I says well nice meeting you Bob I said you want the weather forecast he said well yeah what's, <laughs> I said, it's gonna be nice for you tomorrow <laughs> light winds and so off he went and about 45 minutes later the waitress came over and I says uh I'm taking dad out to lunch. I need the check. And she says, it's paid for. I said, what do you mean? My dad looked at me and says, what happened? What happened? Why why don't we have the check? And uh, she said, Mr. Johnson, he bought your lunch for you and your dad. My dad says... I don't want any charity," <laughs> he says. "But that was a nice gesture," yeah, yeah. he says. "I think I'll watch
0: him every time he
1: rides his horse from now on." See, there you go. It was one of the best moments in my life.
0: Well, that's funny. All right, now you brought up something I was holding off bring bringing it up because I have feeling it's going to take over the show. What in the world? How in the world did you get started doing bowling for dollars? Well, wait. It was well, a- hold on a second. For um, somebody just sent me a text. Who is my guest? My guest today is Fred Brosky legendary um, weatherman, and host of Bowling for Dollars. So, Fred, tell us about what, how did you, whose idea was to start it.
1: Oh, it was simple. It was a nationally syndicated show. It was on many markets over the country, probably 30, 40, 50 oh, markets. I never knew that. It was nationally syndicated but locally produced. Uh, Bert Claster, who had Romper Room and a, f- a few other shows like that, he oh, also yeah. syndicated those. And what he would do is go to the local stations and help them produce it and give them the guidelines, and they had a pretty good formula. It's a pretty successful formula. Right. Worked here for about seven years. Well, anyhow, Metro Media, who owned our station at that time, they decided that they wanted to try this show in Kansas City. So, what, what they had several announcers audition for it, and you just go out and read a few teleprompters, and they have somebody bowl in the bowling lane, and you ask them a few questions, and. Uh, and so they select one of the announcers to do it. It was just that simple. It was, uh, we didn't think it was that big of a deal when we just started it. We thought it might just be a short-run show like one contract for 13 weeks right. or something like that. And so that's how the show got underway. And then we went to King Louis West out at about 87th and Metcalf, and uh-huh. we went there on the weekends to record these shows. We recorded, recorded eight shows on Saturday and seven shows on Sunday. The advent of videotape now coming in allowed us to do a lot of things that we couldn't do before. So it had good facets and bad because sometimes too much videotape is bad. You lose live television, but it was really good for this show. So we go out and tape 15 shows on a weekend and we wait three weeks and go we'll out and tape another 15 shows. And all of a sudden the ratings come out and this thing kind of goes through the roof. They got something that, man, this thing is great ratings. We're going to keep this on the air. So after about. Five or six months, they build two bowling lanes right in the middle of our studio at 10:49 49 okay. Central, right by the news desks. And that was really cool because we didn't have a lot of pressure on us back in those days to do the news weather. We didn't have a lot of things to do in between the shows. And a lot of times we'd have 30 or 40 minutes to go before the 10 o'clock news and a real quiet news day. We'd all go out there. Larry Moore, he'd grab the bowling ball, he'd start throwing. Lenny'd come in and un-Dawson. And, uh, Maybe Don Fortune and John Sanders all were out there throwing bowling balls in a TV station. So it, it was really a lot of fun back in
0: those uh, days. Did you bowl before that?
1: I never bowled. Okay. <laughs> I have kind of a trick knee. I, I kind of uh, damaged my knee when I was about 15 or 16 years old.
0: Oh, you're, and, you're playing the knee card, are you? <laughs> <laughs> it.
1: I really am. Yeah. It, you, it, um, it kind of twisted it, and yeah. every time I tried to bowl, it would kind of buckle up on me. But I, I did throw the ball, but I wasn't very accurate.
0: Okay. So, how many people do you think uh, went through the Bowling for Dollars program?
1: Uh, we ran seven people through a day, and it went for seven years. I figured, and some were repeats, and I figure we probably had about eleven or twelve thousand. people. I was going to say I've
0: I've seen um, in print, you know, the the figure at, at ten thousand people went yeah, through
1: it. Yeah, it was it was really cool, and you know, what, what was fun about the show is you had. People that you knew, we went to school with, or people work with, your relatives were on the show. It was just everyday average people, and they were they were selected by uh, by a formula that they would take one person from, say, Belton, Missouri. You might have a 60-year-old from Belton, and then they might have a 25-year-old factory worker from Bonner Springs, and then they might have an office worker from Independence. Somebody else from Smithville. So it crossed all the lines. We had people ranging anywhere from, I think it had to be 21 at the Did time. Did
0: people apply to it, like send yeah, a they, postcard or something? Or? send
1: in their cards. And then people at home would send in a, a what they called a pin pal card. They send in these postcards, and we put them in a big barrel. And then we draw a name out of the barrel, call them pen pals, and they got to split whatever the bowler won. So yeah. if the bowler would win $500, the guy at home won $250. And we started getting all these mails. And we got so much mail. Sometimes we had this huge barrel in front of us, and sometimes we'd have to change that barrel once every two weeks or so because it had maybe so many thousands of things in it. And then people would bring them to the studio. They'd bring a grocery bag full of these things. It was really neat.
0: Wow! So what kind of prizes were you giving out?
1: Well, you get a dollar a pin for every pin you knock down. You get two strikes in a row. Like if you get a spare, you make ten bucks. And if you get two strikes in a row, then you win a jackpot. And the jackpot starts at two hundred dollars and you add twenty dollars for every bowler, so it's a progressive jackpot. Sometimes it would reach up to fifteen hundred, two thousand, three thousand dollars. And then later they added Which it, was you,
0: a ton of money back well,
1: then. Well it was a it was a ton of money when you're working for a hundred bucks a week. Absolutely. You know? And so then then they added some extra prices because, I mean, the show was really popular. You could not go anywhere, and people didn't watch Bowling for Dollars because it was a family deal. People got their TV tray. They watched Bowling for Dollars every night like they do some of the other shows now.
0: How long would that segment run?
1: Well, each show went, ran six, uh, 30 minutes. but Actually, it was like 22 minutes. So we did uh, uh, 6.30 to 7. It was a 30-minute show, and I think they had – the three two-minute breaks that so, so it really
0: was a half-hour show
1: it was a half-hour I
0: I did not know that yeah,
1: it was a half-hour show but it was it was on every night Monday through Friday and it had tremendous exposure because people didn't have Netflix and they didn't have right uh, all the other uh, access to uh, public information and entertainment like they do now so it it dominated that six thirty to 7 time period for a good number of years and and even when it went off the air I think it was number one in total audience, but it didn't hit the target audience. Like the advertisers are always after the 21 to 39 or 25 to 40 type, a certain target audience. And ours was skewing, uh, attracting more youth under 19, you know, more kids between 5 and 15, and also more seniors between 60 and 90. Yeah. And the advertising community isn't always after that audience, even though it was a large right. audience, and so it went off the air. But but Earl Beal, who was managing a Channel 4 at the time, he called me when the show went off the air. He says, I can't believe it went off the air. And I says, well, maybe you'll put it on your place. He said, well, no, I'm not ready to do that. He said the, that it beat the Muppets on the last rating book. And, <laughs> and, and I just wondered what the people that created the Muppets thought, yeah. you know.
0: Oh, that's great. Okay, before I ask you the next question, uh, for the listeners out there, if any of you remember watching that, uh, want to call in, share your story on that. Our phone number today is nine one three five eight six seven seven nine eight. Do you remember, um, Fred? Whether was there any other kind of local game shows that were big back then? That that hit as big as this? Uh,
1: no, uh, I don't think so. They used to. Uh, I think Milgram sponsored a thing called Off to the Races, and I think it was. Somewhat popular, but I think Bowling for Dollars was the only local show, and it was just an ideal format for the ideal time. And it didn't take the talent to make the show; right. the show made the talent. Yeah, because the the whole thing about the show was not me; it was bringing the bowlers on, and they were the stars of the show. All I did was ride their ride their coattails. 'Cause they just go out and throw oh, a couple but of but
0: It takes the right kind of person to, to allow everybody else to shine. You well
1: know, the main thing you do is let them shine. And that's yeah. it's kinda like what Johnny Carson did. I mean Johnny oh, Carson yeah. when he had it, he always let his people take the star yeah. because he's on every day. Right. And so he'll have his time to shine later. And that's kind of what bowling for dollars was. Because you have seven people on, and you have to figure each one of them is only gonna get three minutes or so. Yeah. But uh those were fun days. And and the news business over those years from the sixties and seventies and the eighties was really a fun business. And you know what? Television and radio, I'm sure it's still the same thing now. It's just that I have memories of then and the guys yeah. working and the gals working now they have memories of what the people that they're, you know, synchronizing with now.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, you, you bring up Johnny Carson. Um, I think we talked about that a while back. You know, it just, I grew up watching Johnny Carson. I mean, yeah. I absolutely love that. And what made him so amazing, And I'd say, I, I would say the same thing about Mike Murphy on the radio. You know, during the eighties and nineties, that he that they the the two of them understood that they were not the star of the show. You know that they were and they, they enabled other people to shine and and to tell their stories.
1: Oh, these people were so good. Um, you would never want to follow somebody like that. You would never want because they were so good. Carson, uh, Mike Murphy, uh, Randy Miller, uh, Dick Wilson, uh, Dare. These guys. Yeah. You know when you sit across them and you watch them do your do their shows. They're they're supernatural. I mean, they do things that nobody else can do. Their mind is going. Their minds are computers before computers were invented. Right, and and, you know they're always one step ahead. And you never want to try to outdo them because they are the best.
0: All right, so we got a lot of things I want to ask you about this. So somebody named Jerry um, online said, ask Fred about the time he pretended he was flying over Kansas City on a broomstick. Okay, Okay. he said your your legs gave out. You stood up midair. That was on Channel Nine. He was the producer at the time. So, what did you do?
1: Okay, Jerry Plants came from Pittsburgh. Well, I didn't give
0: his last name. Well, okay. I'll give it. It's Jerry Plants. <laughs> no, it's embarrassing you, right?
1: There's, there's, there's no secrets with me. <laughs> I, I'm transparent. I tell you everything right. almost. Uh, but anyhow, Jerry Plants was. <clears throat> he grew up in Pittsburgh, and uh, he he was a producer in that area, and he worked for a couple of TV stations. And and back in the '60s, uh, when we did local television. The announcers and the reporters and the anchor people, they just kind of stuck the news together. You know, Charlie Gray said, well, I need three minutes for this story. And I said, well, I can cut my weather down to two minutes and 10 seconds if we need to. And the sports guy says, well, I've got to expand over here because we got a football game, one thing or another. And it was sort of uh, haphazardly put together. And so... The business said we've got to get producers to help put these things together. So all of a sudden, we start hiring producers. And Jerry Plants, so I think, was the first one to Kansas City. Come to Kansas City. Okay, you're
0: avoiding answering the question about the I'm going to get to you on a broomstick.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, I have to tell you, here's a guy that comes. <laughs> he ties these shows together, and he comes up with a lot of creative things. One thing that he'd he'd walk through the newsroom. He just gets there, and he, and he has a $20 bill in his hand. And he reaches over, and he says, hey, look at this, man. And he goes down to the floor, and he holds the $20 bill. He goes, man, I love Kansas City. <laughs> the streets are paved with money. Okay, so, so now we have a chroma key. We stand in front of a blue screen, and you do the weather. And I think it's Halloween, and he wanted to end the show with me riding a broomstick across the Kansas City skyline, okay? And the way you do it, I stand there in front of this blue screen, you have to visualize this on radio, but I'm holding this broomstick in between my legs like this, and I'm stooped over, and I've got bad knees. I told you about that. And I'm I'm <laughs> kind of stooped over like a catcher does behind the home plate. Yeah. And I told Jerry, I said, Before I do, do that, I got to tell you, I got bad knees. I cannot do this forever. I said, But I think I can hold it for 30 seconds. You'll be fine, Fred. They always say, You'll be fine. You
0: know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Just, my it, wife that, does that to me every so day. all of a
1: sudden, he rolls the B roll. That's the. Film that goes behind right. you, and and you're out there on this broom, and you just look at the monitor, and there you are, you're flying across Kansas City, and after about 20 or 30 seconds, I'm just standing there like I'm flying across there, <laughs> and I look at the camera and give him a big smile, you know. Well, I'm having a lot of fun. All of a sudden, my, my right knee—it's killing me. It starts to really ache, and. And I don't have a mic on. They're playing sound effects from the yeah. audio booth. And, and I holler out. I said, Jerry, you got to cut. I said, I can't stand like this much longer. I said, please, Jerry, cut me off. Cut me off. And he didn't <laughs> cut me off. And Finally, I said, oh, I just had to stand up straight. And now, all of a sudden, I'm standing with a skylight going behind me. And I'm holding a broom like I'm a custodian coming by there to sweep out the studio. It was really, it was bad, but it was funny. So so that's did, the story.
0: Did they run it more than once? Did they have a tape of no, that? No, no.
1: Was, it was it um, I think it was, it would probably be in 1970 or so. It was, um, it was played once. I don't think they were, we didn't play a lot of our stuff back.
0: Oh, that's <laughs> we, funny. We didn't want to see it twice. We'll, I'll, I'll, we'll loop back to that if I have time. <laughs> I have a couple of callers. So um, let's go to uh, line one with Mary, if we can. Hello. Oh, hi, Mary.
2: Hi. Hello, Mary.
0: How are you? Good. Welcome to Can't Save Food Memories with Fred Broski. Do you have any memories?
2: Uh, Yes, I do. I actually was a contestant on Bowling for Dollars in probably June of 1986 because I was actually seven months pregnant when I actually got on the TV show. And the two prizes, of the top two prizes at that time were either like, I think, $1,200 $1,200 or $1,500, and then the top prize was a trip to Hawaii, and that's what I was so hoping that I could get, a trip to Hawaii, but I ended up coming in second, but I remember your staff since I was pregnant. Is this on the Bowling for Dollar and, show? Yes, yes, and they kept they kept wanting me, they kept saying, breathe, breathe i think they thought i was going to pass out on them throughout the show so
0: mary did you practice before going on the show
2: i was i was on a bowling league in nevada missouri and a couple of my girlfriends um and i decided to come up and enter a tournament out at independence right there by Independence center and i got i won in that tournament or i got a spot and then that qualified me to get on bowling for dollars um i wasn't very good but (laughs) you know my uh, you know how they did the oh your averages and stuff but yeah so it was a a lot of
0: fun well good well mary thank you for calling and sharing that so that was a pretty big deal for you
2: yes it was yeah we were first married this um And I actually, with the money that I won, I I bought my living room furniture at
1: the time. (laughs) Well, there you go. Thank you, Mary. You're one of the reasons we had a successful show, because you look good.
0: And I'll bet bet every time somebody came to your house and sat on your furniture, you told them how you paid for it, right? (laughs) Yes, I did. Yes, I did. (laughs) All right, Mary. Thank you for...
2: yeah, everybody at home had taped it, but it's on 8-track tape now, so I don't know if I
0: can ever play it again. Oh, that's, that, that's funny. Well, Mary, thank you for calling in. I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. All right, Sam, let's go to line two with Eric.
3: Eric has a memory also. Hey, guys, how are you doing today? Good. I just turned the radio on on my way to the store and that took me back. I was in uh, Boy Scouts back probably mid, late 70s. And we did a tour of the uh, studios, and so it was great because we got to see behind the curtain of the uh, Wizard. If I remember right, Fred, was the uh, were the lanes portable within the studio? You could roll them or not. I, I for some reason, I was thinking they were not fixed in one position.
0: Fred, um, he's asking, uh, were the, the lanes at the radio station or TV station? Were they fixed or? Oh did, yes, they, they
1: they were permanent. They weighed thousands of pounds. It was a full blown. Uh, bowling lanes. We had two of them just in case one of them break on air. Then we could switch to the other one, but they were a permanent fixture. It took them a long time to put them in. It took them a long time to take them out.
3: Most definitely. Yeah. I remember the the size because, you know, we were small kids. We walk in there and it was kind of off in a dark corner because not everything was lit up, but it was, it was so neat to see that because that was something we watched, you know, every day. And, um, I had a good friend who was a really good bowler who never made it on there, but he was, that was his goal to do that one day, but, uh, (laughs) Yeah, it was, it was it was great TV, and it was you know uh, simple but uh, fun, and you were rooting for people, and um, you said you know the prizes seemed big at the time. And, uh, it was, I, I want to thank you guys. Cause that was great television and I uh, really enjoyed it.
1: Well, thank you. It was fun doing it. And you know, we had good bowlers on, but we didn't pick only bowlers that had 200 averages. We picked them from all across the spectrum. We had average bowlers of 120, 130 on up to 180 and 200. We just took a wide variety of bowlers. And, uh, that was kind of the secret of the show that we didn't have all good bowlers on. And, uh, And sometimes we had a good bowler on, and and they couldn't figure out the lanes because they they were – see, a regular bowling alley, they oil the lanes, I think, almost every day, and they keep the track really good for the bowlers so they can bowl their regular averages – Well, we were in the studio, and at that time, we had these real bright studio lights. You turn it on, it might get up to 95 or 100 degrees in the studio, and as a result, the surface would get pretty dry unless you oil it all the time. Well, the stagehands were in charge of oiling it, and sometimes they didn't get it oiled regularly, and as a result, it would dry out. And then other times, people would say, don't oil it. We want the jackpot to go up, which (laughs) is what
0: people
3: to pull. So that's what happened. (laughs) Put your thumb on the scale. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, my friend's mom was a manager at Strike and Spare Independence, and so the few bowlers I had heard said, you know, said the same thing that you know it was really dry, so their you know their hooks took off real quick. But right, you uh, figure with a the studio, it's, they don't have someone to do it daily. So right, but see, I, thank you for you. Yep.
1: Uh, well, thank you. Well, uh, see, th- thank you, Eric. A, a real good bowler, they you know they bowl by the marks on the lanes. They throw it at number two or three yeah. dot or whatever, so the ball curves at the right place and has a big hook on it. And everybody got a chance to bowl and practice for five or ten minutes before the show was taped. However... When, when they get there and they start practicing, they, they see that it's got a big hook in it, and they, and they figure it out. But then when they get on TV, the cameras are on, oh, yeah. they only have one shot, and they revert to their former style. Oh, and yeah. bam. One of the best bowlers in Kansas City, he was the lane man over at NKC Pro Bowl. His name was Gary May. And I mean he carried a two oh five average. He was right at being pro level. He gets on there and he throws the first ball and it starts way to the right and is hooking back and it misses everything. Here's a guy that hasn't missed a head pin for thirty yeah. years.
0: You didn't laugh on air, did you? Oh,
1: well, I try not to. <laughs> No, because I the problem is you give somebody a real big build-up, and if they don't, they oh, you know, yeah. oh man, now you're stuck. You, know? so, uh,
0: you had a studio audience for this, right? Yeah, each bowler was
1: allowed to bring like five, six, seven, eight friends or relatives, mm-hmm. and so we had like 45 or 50 people for each show. And uh, that also made it interesting because everybody's pulling for all the bowlers and oh, yeah. we get them to give them a round of applause and all that, and we're doing three shows a night. And so... Here in the station, we have a hundred people or more running loose sometimes in the T V station because we didn't always have the best security. And so they all come in. And they wait upstairs at the lobby, which is only about 20 feet square. And then all of a sudden, somebody says, hey, I wonder where this, where this elevator goes. And so they start punching the elevator down in the basement. They go, well, that's where our studio is. And then they see that we're, we're doing news or something. So they start roaming around the building. I could still hear Larry Moore say, hey, Brusky, your bowers are loose. He says, they're loose in the newsroom. Yeah. They're running all over the yeah, place. They're your people, right? <laughs> yeah. So he says, Larry, I'm doing the best I can. I'm ready, getting ready to do weather show and I've got bowlers running all over the studio it was it was neat television
0: yeah so so, yeah so Lezak had his dogs running around the station and you had people (laughs) yeah people running around (laughs) right all right um Fred let's go to uh line one we have Janice that wants to call and share a story hi hello hi Hi. Janice hi Janice Uh,
4: yeah hi how are you guys good good um no I um I just wanted to thank you because when my dad's been deceased since 2000, but when I remember every single day, he loved to bowl. He was in, you know, just a group of men that had a league and loved bowling. And we would sit around the kitchen table every single evening and watch bowling for dollars together, just he and I. And it was just, it's a really special memory for me with my dad, and I don't have that many of them. So, thank you. Oh,
1: well, thank you very much for the response, because this happened over and over and over in, in the Kansas City area. It was a family-type program. We never got into anything off-color, and uh, it was just yeah. fun people like you and me having fun on television, and uh, a lot of uh, family relationships were built over this silly little show. <laughs>
4: Yeah, and I got interested in bowling. Of course, I never did anything with it. You know, I was in, in, in like a backup in a league for a while and that stuff. But well, that's it something. Always, always brings back very well, special memories of my father. Well, that's it's good, so good.
1: And, and you know that's that's the good thing about bowling because it is a family sport. You can have yep. eight-year-olds bowling with thirty-year-olds uh, and with eighty years old, and. uh yep. And it, it brings the family together when they go out and bowl, even if it's open bowling. And then also there's a certain amount of camaraderie that you have when you bowl in a league like every Tuesday or Wednesday night or right. an, an afternoon group or whatever. So it's yeah. uh, it, it ties people together. It's a fun sport, and you don't have to really bowl 200 every time to have right. fun.
4: Well, yeah, and it was so much fun when my kids were little. I would take them, and, you know, when they were little, little, they'd use the little frame thing, you know, that they had. Right. And they'd move on to just the, the, you know, fill, you know, pockets there, you know, so the Mm. pumper fills it. And, um, you know, they just had such a good time. And you can cheer on everybody, you know, because, like you said, it doesn't matter if you're – a 200 bowler or a 75 bowler, you do when you do well. Everybody cheers
0: for you. Right, right. Well, yeah. Janice, thank you for calling. in. I really appreciate thank you. that.
4: And you it's, bet. Have a great day, right. guys. Thank, thank you. you. Bye.
0: Now, Fred, isn't it humbling when you see and hear how much you've touched people's lives? It's rewarding.
1: You know, you get in the business to try to get people to like you. You know, you want to be in show business. Right, that's natural. Yeah, and. Uh, and when you hear stories like that, it is very comforting. comforting. But there, there's another side to it. You know, back in when I first got into broadcasting, uh, one of the bosses said, look, you can't please everybody. He says, what you try to do is get 90% of the people. So all of a sudden you have an audience of 100,000 people and 10% of them don't like you. That's 10,000 yeah, people. Yeah. You know, that's
0: a bunch of people. You can't, you can't <laughs> think about that part of it.
1: No. But, you know, we're talking about the restaurants. It reminds me of a story that we went out to dinner one night at the, the Golden Ox. It was down in the West Bottoms, and they had some great steaks down there. And and uh, we had a, I don't know, we had a party of eight or ten people. And, and I walk in, and the maitre d' says, oh, you, know, you look just like Fred Broski. I said, you know, a lot of people told me that. She said, I can't
0: stand him. Said, well, I've heard that before, too. That, that's why you never admit to who you are until you find out what their intent and is. And she says. He's, he's got that phony smile. <laughs>
1: I said, yeah, I've heard that too. And so she took us to our table. Now I'm trying to figure out how to get myself out of this and no. how to get her out of this. And then a waitress comes over and she says, oh, Fred, are you, uh, would you sign this for my kids? We watch it every night. So I signed a logograph. <laughs> and now the mater d', she, I can't see her. She's nowhere <laughs> around. <laughs> and I tried to apologize to her and say, I'll try to do better in the future, no. but I never did yet. And I've I feel bad for her because then she was really embarrassed, but it was a good lesson that both of us learn. Uh, she has to learn what she's going to say yeah. in a New York minute, yeah. and I have to learn that everybody doesn't like no. you. Try to improve.
0: Yeah. You know, it's I, I have to tell you, this probably sounds odd, but I want to thank you for being a wonderful human being. Oh, thank because, you. Well, the reason, well, I'm, my point is that, you know, we've all met celebrities, news celebrities, TV celebrities, sports celebrities. That are nothing like their public persona. You know, you approach them off screen, you know, out, out of their, what they're famous for, and they're just, they're not nice. I know it. You know, and it's just in it. Every time somebody sees that, it breaks their heart and it makes them cynical.
1: Yes. But I,
0: there's the people like you, you know, that, that are not like that. I got, I'm gonna read a real short text here that somebody sent in. One early morning in the 1970s, my sister and I were fishing on the banks of the Turkey Creek at Martin's Ford Resort near Warsaw, Missouri. All of a sudden, in a passing jumbo came Fred Broski with his family. As fans of Bowling for Dollars, we were starstruck. And she goes on to say that Fred was so gracious, he greeted us and then serenaded us as he passed. Good morning to you. You know, and she said this story that she's repeated hundreds of times.
1: <laughs> That's great. That's heartwarming.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, that 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 says more than, than so many other things that we've done.
1: Well... You learn not to get too full of yourself. Right. However, you do get full of yourself once you get on the air and then you finally realize, wait a minute, let's get back to earth. Because yeah. it's easy to start getting, you know, you don't want to read all your news releases yeah. and think that they're right. true. Sam Mullen told me that. He says yeah. the news releases aren't true. They just say how good you are right. and don't believe them because you're not that good. And that's one another thing you learn, especially with the advent of videotape. Or on the audio tape, like when you guys go on the air, when you think you're really – all of us mess up when we go on the air from time to time, that we're not up to what we feel is our standards. And so you do something, you're really good. You say, man, I can't wait to go home and watch this, baby. I had a heck of a show tonight. You look at the show and you think, gosh, I wasn't as good as I thought I was. And so then you say, Well, I should have done this and did this. So you, you learn from the experience. And then when you really mess up on the air, and we all do that from time to time, and you go home and look at it, it's never as bad as you thought it was. Right. So you're usually somewhere yeah. around par.
0: Right. Well, you know what's I've learned since doing this show? We started this show back in January, and it's um, I've met thousands of people, new people, strictly because of this radio show. And I have, and it, it really bothers me even more how I see other celebrities treat fans. Because, you know, that people come up to you because you've become a part of their life. Right. You know, we've become part of their their memories, their conversations, and things like that. And how could you not be thankful and appreciative of the people that are giving their time for us?
1: Well said. Well said.
0: Good. Well, I wanted to thank you for that. You know, we don't—
1: I appreciate that. And I've always tried to get with the audience— And uh, we're all people. We're all living on the same grounds. You know, we're all Kansas Cityans. And maybe some people live in a great big house and some people live in a smaller house. We're different price shirts, but we're still all the same. And basically, there's very, very little difference. So you may as well be nice to people and they'll be nice to you. I want to tell you a story about a weather show, okay? I'm I'm sitting in the announce booth down at Channel 9, probably 1968 or so. And um, phone calls don't normally get in this little booth because you're sitting there waiting for a station break to read. NBC, Metro Media, Kansas City, or something like that. The phone rings, and I answer, is this Fred Broski? Oh, yeah, this is Fred. Well, this is Margaret. And, uh, and Fred, I want to tell you, I, I was nominated the president of our Garden Society today. I said, the Garden Society? You're the president? Oh, that's great. She says, I'm going to have a, a luncheon on the veranda uh, on May 15th. I said, oh, that's great. It's middle of February now. I says, well, what, what can I do for you? She says, I want to know what the weather is. I says, for May 15th? I says, it's February 15th. She says, yeah. And so I says, wait a minute. And I put the phone on the desk and I think, Man, what should I do here? Uh, should I call the hospital and maybe <laughs> tell them to send them over there? You know, hard enough predicting weather three days in advance, yeah. let alone three months. So I wait about thirty seconds and I get back. Margaret, it's Fred. Uh, I got good news for you. It's going to be seventy-seven degrees, partly sunny, wind from the south at five miles per hour. Oh, Fred, thanks a lot. We'll have a great party
0: thanks to you. Bye, bye. Click. Well, she at least had a month of, of stress-free, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. Um, I, let's go to our. Uh, um same. Let's go to line one with Jim. Jim, do you have a question or a memory for,
3: for us? I have a I have a memory for uh, Fred. Um, I grew up with uh, Joe Kanoki, senior and junior. And senior was a cameraman at uh, KMVC. Yes. And, uh, Joe. And Fred remembers him.
1: Fred remembers Joe Kanoki very very well. Joe Kanoki was one of the good guys in the business, and back in those days. Um, I can't really really remember any bad guys. They're on the console. We had Joe Kanoki and Eugene Harper was in charge of video and Ellis Taylor was the audio guy and Mike Flagler. And uh, he was one of our directors along with uh, 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 Jim Jeanette was a director there for a while. And we had three camera guys, uh, Bob Ursum and uh, Pat LaPone and uh, Freddie Priestler, and these engineers, uh, they helped guide us junior announcers through our early stages in the career, and they were immense help to us every day. Joe Kenoki was one of the best.
4: Uh, you're a, a treat as well as uh, what you brought to the town. We
0: appreciate it. Well, uh, thank you, Jim. I appreciate you calling. Thank he, you. He said you were just uh, a treasure to this town. Oh, thank North you. City.
1: Thank you. Um, I grew up here, uh, and it— it was easy, <laughs> believe me. It was easy.
0: Well, you know, it's we have something really special here in Kansas City. You know, I, I've traveled a lot. I'm sure you've traveled. It is just, we just have a just an amazing mixture of sincerity and humbleness and togetherness in this town that I just don't experience in other other large cities in, in the United States.
1: Well. Uh, you know, I've, I've done some traveling in my later years, too, on v- various vacations. And I did a lot of business travel because I did a lot of freelance work. And uh, I just I just always loved getting on, getting on the plane and coming back to Kansas City. There's no place like home. Mm-mm. And, uh, you know, we all have opportunities to move to other cities, but no place. I got an anchor here. And when you're right. anchored, when you have family and friends, it's just hard to pick up and leave. And it's just hard to beat Kansas right. City. We've got people. We've got seasons. We've got it all.
0: Yeah, one of my – I think my second show that I had, I had um, Frank Boll on. Mm-hmm. And, he he was had, <laughs> and he had the phrase, he said, there's just something about Kansas City.
1: It's you know, pretty special.
0: That makes it where you don't want to leave.
1: It's pretty special. And it's
0: just – when I first started doing this show, um, I, I have this conversation about old restaurants that you miss from the 80s and 90s. And I've had this conversation with people for, I don't know, 10, 15 years because I want to find out what people miss. That's what I try to capture at, at Best Regards. I tried to make the dishes that maybe your mom or your aunt used to make and I wanted to find out what what really fueled those old fond memories. And so when I started doing the show that was my main inspiration but since mm-hmm. then it's grown to I, I, there's so much more amazing the food's fantastic and the memories of some of those restaurants are drive a lot of it but it's the the true treasure of Kansas City are people like you, Fred. Well thank you making a meet We've had some really good Jim Eddie. I, um, you know he is I've, he's been on my show twice and it's just he's such a treasure and just the way we help each other in this town
1: there was eddie chateau Buff downtown around 8th and main it was right as part of that motel complex there okay. and it was it was down below they had some of the best food it was uh, french cuisine and uh len dawson and jackie and my wife and I would go there many times back in the glory days in the late sixties and early seventies. And they had some of the best food that I could ever remember. Right. And, I, and when, when I had my little business going and I would take clients out to lunch downtown, it was always, and it's Chateau Leboeuf. they had something they cut on a bias, some little piece of meat. I don't know what it was, but it was charred on both sides. And it was some of the best stuff I ever had. I, I don't even know, remember what the name was, but I remember good times were always had there.
0: Well, well, Fred, I, I'm going to ask you back on my show again sometime. There's okay. one show specifically we're going to talk about. We're going to do a show on Kansas City Film Row, and we'll do a show on that one. Okay. But then I want to – well, I'll bring you back again to talk You know, – I'll bring a couple of people in to just talk about what we just – some of the uh, – what we just discussed about what makes Kansas City so special. And also later this weekend, I want to speak with you if you can think of other people okay. that we need to keep their memories alive.
1: Okay. Because Sounds good. there
0: are thousands of people out there listening right now that love these stories and want to relive those and not forget them.
1: I've got a lot of stories to tell oh, you I, about. I, I know you do. <laughs> Wendell yeah. and Schutz and
0: Peter. Yeah, I know you do. That's a good bunch. I'd, I'd love to have. Um, um, well, we'll talk about that. Okay. Okay, okay. So a couple of questions online because we're coming up on the end. Of, can you believe it's been an hour already?
1: I can't believe it.
0: All right. So, Lister said they missed last week's show with uh, Kathy Quinn or the show before with uh, Jasper. My, this show is taped and is available on my podcast. Go to any podcast provider and just search for Kansas City Food Memories. Everything going back to early January with the oldest episodes are available. You can listen to them. If you, um, There's also transcripts available if you're hard of hearing. I have that transcribed there that you can listen to it. If you want to reach out to me, if you know somebody else like Fred, that that would be a joy to listen to, reach out to me. My email is robert at com. Go to Make Them Smile, sign up for my emails, or just come out to the bakery. We're at 119th in Glenwood, two blocks east of Metcalf. Come out and see us. We're open today till 2. Come out on weekdays. We're open from 8 o'clock to 5 o'clock in the afternoon. I'd love to visit with you and talk to you about food. Fred? Yes? Thank you very much for coming in. Thank you, Robert. Well, I hope you enjoyed this. I know you're a little stressed about coming in and doing the show, but Kansas City, thank you for listening.
3: This concludes this broadcast of Kansas City Food Memories.